Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In 1943, during the war in Italy, my father bumped into an old friend, a strange encounter that would haunt him for the rest of his life. At this time, the Allies were advancing up the country and having to deal with not only fierce German resistance, but also a brutal terrain of mountains and rivers. Now the names of the rivers sound merely lyrical, the Moro, the Rapido, the Pescara, to name but a few. But to my father, still quite young and raised in the wilds of County Leash, the son of a Church of Ireland minister, and anything but the killing machine the army wanted him to be, these rivers were simply obstacles and death traps. One time, during the battle of one such river, the Sangro, he was scouting a ruined farmhouse below a hill. It was getting dark, and as he stumbled through the entrance, he could see in the dim light a group of Allied soldiers putting on equipment and blackening their faces. A match flickered as someone lit a cigarette, and he was taken by surprise to see what seemed to be the face of someone he'd known at school called Terence. He picked his way across the room and asked the man if he was indeed Terence. The soldier peered into the gloom and lit a match and stared at my father's face. He then said, Good God, is that you, Emily? My father knew he'd got the right man. He and Terence had been pupils at Petora School in Enniskillen, and Emily had been my father's nickname. Why? Because there was a female teacher at Petora who shared my father's surname, albeit with a different spelling, and it was irresistible to call my dad by her first name. Terence and Emily, that is my dad, were thrilled to see each other's friendly faces. Terence explained that he was just about to go out on patrol and pave the way for the advance of Allied infantry, including my dad's machine gun company. My father reminded Terence that the last time he tried to pave the way for him, it was back at school in a rugby match when Terence burst out of a scrum and passed the ball back to him. The pass was flung so high it went over my dad's head and landed on the referee's whistle, which happened to be in his mouth. Terence laughed at the memory and reassured my dad he'd be more careful this time. In fact, he really had to be more careful. As an engineer, Terence and his colleagues were about to clear a path across the minefield. This involved not only finding the mines, but also inserting cold, numb fingers to feel for wires around them, because lifting one mine could set off another one attached to it below. Meanwhile, behind the engineers, the infantry would creep forwards, praying their colleagues had done their job. No pressure, as the saying goes today. It was clear to my dad that Terence was dreading this ordeal. But after swapping news for a few more minutes, my father had to return to his company headquarters. Before he went, he told Terence that after his patrol, they should get together tomorrow evening and have a tot of rum and a good old chat. 
this seemed to hearten Terence immensely. Then wishing him good luck, my father left him to his mission. The next day my father was informed that Terence's shattered body had been found in a trench. A report said that he'd been lifting up a mine in open ground and had been caught by enemy fire. Terence had dived into a trench beside him, which appeared to be a miracle of protection. He didn't know the trench was booby-trapped. My father took the news badly. He crept off to his private quarters, which basically comprised a hole in the ground. And he thought of Terence, Petora, the rugby match, the stray pass, and, of course, the tragedy of war. But more than anything else, he said the prayer he used to say to himself day and night in Italy. Oh, please, God, don't let me be killed. In September 2005, I flew with a group of academics and journalists to Sevastopol, Crimea. After the heady buzz of Kiev, whose orange revolution had just set Ukraine on course to a European future, Sevastopol was a time capsule of the Soviet past. Hotel receptions were manned by functionaries who handled our foreign passports with seeming distaste and doled out room keys only once every 10 minutes. I met an indigenous Tatar woman, the first ever in her community to earn a PhD. At a meeting the next morning with the deputy governor, I raised the plight of the Tatars, expelled by Stalin in 1944 and still trickling home. He replied curtly that Tatars were uneducated and transient and couldn't expect equal treatment to citizens. History's hangover meshed with early 2000s consumerism, Mercedes cars decked in plastic flowers would stop abruptly at war memorials as big as office buildings. Just married couples would leap out and pose beneath statues of God-sized warriors pointing their bayonets skyward. The brides wore cerise lipstick and puffs of blue-white nylon, their grooms tight black suits and Miami Vice loafers. They'd smile brightly, then dash to their cars and race to the next one. We went by minibus to Yalta, where Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin had boozily agreed the post-war carve-up of Europe. Nothing could have prepared me for Yalta's ethereal beauty, in a time before Insta-filters could overlay a dreamlike quality on the most banal of scenes, the light over Yalta's steeply forested hills and bouncing grey-blue sea seemed beamed in from a better world. Thick sea air hung like a fine muslin veil softening and brightening everything and everyone. From the tender, rolling waves of the Black Sea, we tumbled and laughed in pure joy, watching a man in tight black trunks perform vigorous calisthenics on a platform and swan dive in. That night, we walked about the town, 
drunk on the lilac honey air and a fair amount of neat vodka. Yalta's winding, honeysuckled passages gave on to courtyards that seemed neither wholly private nor public, indoor nor outdoor. Blundering through an empty hotel seeking one last drink, we let ourselves out the back of an abandoned function room onto another lane. We followed our noses, convinced the sea was just metres away. We never found it, but stumbled on a small square with a party gathered at bottle-strewn tables. We asked to buy a drink, but they refused. It was a wedding. We asked again and were turned away. It was clear we'd been rude. We returned to our hotel, got the expensive bottles we'd planned to bring home and went back. We presented them with a mimed apology and were invited to sit. We knew almost no Russian and our companions no English. But, though we had few shared words, we had poetry. Pushkin, I cried, holding up my glass. Pushkin, they happily agreed, but no one knew any. Mandelstam, I tried. Mandelstam, they replied, but nothing came of it. Then, almost shyly, I named my favourite, the Odessa-born poet of the deathless suffering under Stalin's terrors. The woman who'd stood at a Leningrad prison door for 17 long months, begging for a single word of the arrested son she'd abandoned as a baby, who'd woven her own self-blame and a people's shared anguish into a shroud of words for those shoved into Stalin's black marias and driven away into the night. Akhmatova, I said. All eyes turned to an elderly woman swathed in black. Akhmatova, she nodded. Requiem, I said. She closed her eyes, tipped her head slightly back and declaimed into the growing quiet. She spoke slowly and roughly, each word of Akhmatova's witness as though pulled harshly from a life of grief. There I learned how faces fall apart, how fear looks out from under the eyelids, how deep are the hieroglyphics cut by suffering on people's cheeks. Requiem was only published in the Soviet Union in 1989. Before that, it passed from mouth to trusted ear, whispering a people's pain. Requiem was clear on one thing. Russia was an innocent victim of its tyrant's crimes. From Akhmatova's thickly folded guilt and grief, she unfurled a mantle of mourning to cover a continent. I think of her often now. What she'd have made of her son Lev's post-Gulag career. A Soviet academic, he wrote furious pseudo-histories of Russia's exceptionalism and victimhood. His work inspired Putin's chief ideologue and eventually Putin himself as his lockdown reading. Lev's idea of Russia as uniquely sinned against and suffering seems to me to invert the alchemy of how Akhmatova transmuted her private pain into universal compassion. I think of the Tatar woman, how her puny freedoms were crushed when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. How whole Tatar villages and towns are now cleared of fathers, brothers, sons, all conscripted to fight Putin's war. You are my son and my terror, Akhmatova wrote in Requiem. I'm glad she never learnt the full, 
awful truth of those words. The legendary Clonmel bandsman, Mick Delahunty of the 50s and 60s, often received letters from the ladies. This poem is for one such lady. The Bridges of Paris. It nearly broke my heart the other day when I heard Mick Dell on the wireless. His saxophone music enticed me away from the pan of rashers on the cooker, spirited me under the bridges of Paris. Himself found me with glassy eyes when he came in with the eggs. I told him that I was chopping onions, but hoped he'd see there wasn't an onion in sight and that my expression was different. I was a girl again in the Collins Hall, himself all spruce in his sports coat and natty winkle pickers, trying to pluck up the courage to ask if I'd join him for a bottle of lemonade in the mineral bar. I never get to the dances now with the house full of children. Some Sunday evening, I'd love if he'd ask his mother to sit with the kids so we could take a spin into Clonmel and hear Mcdell. She'd think me cracked in the head, a flighty piece, fond of the road. The only road I travel now is the one I trudge with message bags and buckets of water. I keep a pair of new nylons in the drawer and the good blouse ironed, just in case a miracle might happen. I feel hopeful sometimes when I hear him hum, little brown jug, wink at me when the young ones join in the chorus. Hello everyone. You're about to hear Mick Delahunty and his orchestra playing a special arrangement of Little Brown Jug. It's sometime in the early 1950s. Still a young boy, I'm staying with my grandparents in Limerick. On this grey, rainy November day, my grandmother is taking me with her out onto the streets of Limerick. Everything smells of wet. This is the flag day of the British Legion and we're going to spend it selling little paper poppies to raise money for the Legion. Just who or what the British Legion is doesn't mean anything to me. But something else does. The thought of a cream cake in the Stella Café in the late afternoon, when my grand's feet have finally had enough. Long after my grandmother had died, I began to realise that selling poppies for the British Legion on the streets of Republican Limerick in the 1950s must have required a lot of courage. 
and I began to understand what motivated her to do that. Her family, the Rileys from the Liberties in Dublin, had for generations been suppliers of fodder for the horses of the British Army in Richmond Barracks. So it was natural that many young men in the family volunteered and enlisted to fight in the Great War. Their motivation, I think, was neither pro-British nor anti-Irish. It was simply a family tradition. During the war, her brother Tom served in the Royal Irish Rifles. Another brother, John, was an army padre. Her uncle Ned lost a leg. Uncle Charles lost a foot. Uncle Bill was listed as missing and somewhere in northern France is known only unto God. The Great War loomed large over her family. Perhaps the saddest story was that of her uncle, Thomas Hewson Curtis, who enlisted in South Africa and served throughout the war on the Western Front. In October 1918, the final days of the war, he returned to Dublin on a short leave. At the start of his journey back to the front in Belgium, the mailboat, the RMS Leinster, was torpedoed by a German submarine 16 miles out of Kingstown, as it then was known. He drowned along with 350 others, leaving a young widow and small child in Pretoria. The war by then was effectively over. It had only days to run. Something like 210,000 Irishmen, north and south, served in the British Army during the Great War. Lutyen's Garden of Remembrance at Island Bridge commemorates 50,000, that's almost one in four, who lost their lives. In the South, the ones who survived came home to an Ireland that had been changed utterly. Having fought for the Crown forces, many were ostracised and treated as traitors, often by their own families. As Talleyrand says, treason is a matter of dates. The fledgling Irish state turned its back on them and many were destitute. The uncomfortable truth for us is that the British Legion did more to help these traumatised Irishmen than did the government of the Irish Free State. Some years after that flag day in Limerick, I'm now a rebellious teenager, spending Christmas in my other grandparents' house just outside Cork. This family, originally from Yorkshire, settled in Ireland in the 1920s and also had deep connections to the Great War. My grandfather served in the British Army and survived the war, minus an eye. Christmas Day is choreographed around the Queen's speech. It's carefully arranged so that we'll all be squashed around the dining table, listening in silence to the wireless, with the smells of the cooking turkey wafting in from the kitchen. My grandfather, as always, wears his poppy at home. He doesn't wear it in public. At the sound of God Save the Queen, We'll all stand and then drink a toast to Her Majesty before starting the noisy, festive Christmas meal. But on this particular year, on impulse, I refused to stand, saying sullenly, She's not my queen. My grandfather is shocked and annoyed. My grandmother gives me a stern lecture in the kitchen. In her Yorkshire accent, she tells me, In Grandad's house, you do as Grandad says. You stand to attention for queen. Over 60 years later, I still cringe inwardly when I think about my insolence. And so, at 11 o'clock this Remembrance Sunday morning, you'll find me at Island Bridge, 
standing quietly at the granite stone, with my collar turned up against the cold. Amongst the russet and golden autumnal trees, I'll be wearing the red poppy of the British Legion. And I shall wear it in respectful memory of those who fought in all wars and died for our liberty. But also in memory of my brave grandmother, her brothers and uncles, and to atone for that impudence to my long-dead grandfather. I pass by his house whenever I walk the towpath along the Royal Canal near Nace. I never knew Seamus O'Kelly. In fact, I'd never even heard of him. I didn't know that he lived in Nace until a plaque was unveiled on the wall of the Leinster Leader building. That plaque is small and a bit obscure, but it recognises Seamus O'Kelly as the gentle revolutionary. I needed to know more, and I searched for him in the local library. Calling him the gentle revolutionary doesn't do the man justice. Yes, he was a revolutionary, but he was also a gentle genius. It was in Loch Grey, County Galway, that Seamus O'Kelly was born in 1881. He was a delicate child and often absent from school. He loved the countryside and roamed freely around the area, meeting people and listening to their songs and stories. He held on to those experiences until he was ready to write them. And it wasn't just the songs and stories. His poetry tells of the workers he came across during his youth in and around Loch Ray. He wrote of the shearers, the showman, the spinner, the cockle sellers, the Shannar, the Shanaki, a Fido player. And here are the opening lines of the Stonebreaker. My back to the sun all the daytime, and my head o'er the hateful heap. My world is the flint and the limestone. Oh, harsh is the harvest I reap. And by contrast, Seamus writes that the fisherman goes to work with a song. My eyes on the stars God hangs out for me. I sing in the wind as I put out to sea. Seamus O'Kelly was not just a poet, but a novelist, short story writer and dramatist during a troubled time in Ireland. His literary talent earned him a job as a provincial journalist. And a few years later, he was appointed as editor of the Southern Star. He was the youngest editor in Ireland at that time. Another opportunity presented itself to him and he became editor of the Leinster Leader in Nace, County Kildare. There he lived in a pretty cottage beside the canal at the first lock where he penned the magnificent story of the Golden Bark. I paused there sometimes to picture what he wrote about. 
the boat loomed out of the haze on the narrow neck of the canal water. It looked at first a long way off, and it seemed to come in a cloud. The soft rose light that mounted the sky caught the boat and burnished it like dull gold. His visit to Dublin and his interest in the struggle for Ireland's freedom put him in touch with Arthur Griffith. They became firm friends. In fact, when Arthur was taken and interned, Seamus O'Kelly stepped into his shoes as editor of Nationality, the Sinn Féin newspaper. He wrote five plays, three novels and a number of short stories. It is said that he invented the long short story, in particular his most famous work, The Weaver's Grave. Enchanting is the word I used to describe it. Who could not be enchanted by this tale of a group of old men clambering over the stile into Clun the Morrow, the meadow of the dead? They make their way through mounds of earth and they argue about the location of the long-forgotten grave of the weaver. Even in their disagreements, their language is, yes, enchanting too. Seamus O'Kelly struggled all his short life with ill health. When he was working at the office of the newspaper Nationality on Harcourt Street, Dublin, in November 1918, on Armistice Day, it was broken into and ransacked by a drunken mob of off-duty soldiers. Afterwards, he was discovered lying on the floor clutching his chest. He died three days later in Jervis Street Hospital. He was 37 years old. When I walk by his cottage, I think of him in there, looking out at the canal and writing the golden bark. The horse drew himself along deliberately, the patient head going up and down with every heavy step. A crane rose from the bog, flapping two lazy wings across the wake of the boat and reaching out its long neck before it got lost in the haze. <laughs> This weather, I find myself thinking of Ukraine and the Ukrainians a lot. No wonder, says you, and there are horrific news coming out of there morning, noon and night. Yes, there's that, and there's my students. You see, over half my language classes are now made up of Ukrainian women and older men. They come and learn English while their children or grandchildren attend the local national and secondary schools. They are mad keen students and tell me they like it best when I teach them grammar. Truth be told, I hate teaching grammar. I'd rather read poetry with my students. I could tell them all about my favourite hometown poet, 
Palomine. Maybe the students from Odessa would tell me all about their hometown poet, Anna Akhmatova. But when a family has been fractured by war, men on battlefields, while women, children and the elders seek temporary protection in far-flung countries or endure the cruel obscenities of war, well, even I can see the need for grammar. I get it. The comfort of linguistic rules and regulations to make sense out of a senseless world. So we study grammar. My students write sentences. Simple present. I am Ukrainian. Present continuous. I am living in Ireland. Present perfect. I have lived here since February. Recently, Akhmatova's hometown of Odessa was bombed. Again. And Kiev, where Akhmatova graduated secondary school, went to college and got married, has endured barrages of missiles and drone bombs. We watch TV and see many Ukrainian cities blown to bits. See hospitals, power stations, playgrounds, schools and apartment blocks left in ribbons. They stand now as mangled monuments to where infrastructure and people used to be. So we study grammar. My students write sentences. Past simple. I spoke with my husband on the mobile last night. Past continuous. We were whispering because our children were sleeping. Past perfect. He had survived the latest drone attack, but our neighbours were not so lucky. I'm almost used to students standing up in class, excusing themselves to answer an urgent call from Ukraine and returning to the classroom with bowed heads, faces swollen with emotion or eyes rimmed red. Now the students want other kinds of lessons. How to write a note to a teacher when a child or adult needs to be absent from class. How to practice for the driver theory test. What proof of address documents are acceptable in order to get a public library card. The list goes on and the lesson plans change from day to day. However, there are moments of poetic relief and it comes from the students. When I remarked on the weather being manky, one student held on to the word manky, googled it and laughed at the idea of rain being dirty. That resulted in a 10-minute detour lesson into all the Hiberno-English phrases for weather. Soft day. Mild enough, coming down in buckets. Or me hands are blue with the cold. Poetic relief. Last Monday, one of my students came in with a library book. The title was 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. She stood up, very polite, very formal, and said, Teacher, I would like to read a poem. Sure, I couldn't refuse her, and would never refuse poetry. She read Anna Akhmatova's In Memory of M.B. Here is my gift, not roses on your grave, not sticks of burning incense, 
you lived aloof, maintaining to the end your magnificent disdain. You drank wine and told the wittiest jokes and suffocated inside stifling walls. Alone, you let the terrible stranger in and stayed with her alone. Now you're gone and nobody says a word about your troubled and exalted life. Only my voice, like a flute, will mourn at your dumb funeral feast. I looked around. The class was silent. The Ukrainian students, the students from other countries, and this teacher were all held in that place called poetry. So we study grammar. My students write sentences. Future simple. One day I'll return home to Ukraine. Future continuous. When I see my family and friends, I will be crying. Future perfect. Only God knows who or what will have survived this war. On this morning's programme, we heard Terence and Emily by James Harper. That was followed by Crimea by Maria Farrell. Then The Bridges of Paris, a poem by Margaret Galvin. After that, we had The Poppy by Brian Patterson. That was followed by The Gentle Revolutionary, Seamus O'Kelly by May Leonard. And finally, we heard English Grammar and Ukrainian Poetry by Rachel Hegarty. The music this morning, we began with Fischia il Vento by Cora della Bassa Romagna. Then we heard Shedrick, Shedrick, the Little Swallow, sung by the Vita Ukrainian Folk Choir. That was followed by The Geese on the Bog, played on harp by Gronje Hambly. Then, Keep the Home Fires Burning by Stephen Isserlis and Connie Shee on cello and piano. Then we heard a Little Brown Jug by Mick Delahunty and his orchestra. And that's from a CD of Mick Delahunty's Lost Recordings, recently issued by Tipperary Museum of Hidden History. For more information, see hiddenhistory.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can listen back at rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany and follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.